0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmyra.ca. Good morning, everybody. If you're a guest with us, good morning. It's good to see you and have you here on this hot and muggy morning at Citizens Church. You're probably sticking to the pew, so that means it's summertime And there's even folks up in the balcony, which is great. It's a couple degrees higher up there even, so they're sacrificing for everybody. As I was thinking about our passage this morning, and if you have a Bible, please turn to Psalm 22 if you haven't already. I was actually thinking about the weather because it was hot all week. And I knew that it would be hot in here, even though we opened open the windows and the air would try to come in. I knew that it would be steamy. But at the same time, I look out over the congregation and everybody's kind of glowing, slightly glistening from sweat. But also glowing because you're just enjoying summer. And I can see those of you who tan are tanning and... There's just like a glow about everybody that only comes in summertime and it got me thinking about the seasons of Canada and how the seasons of Canada are actually a good metaphor for our lives. Some of us are in the summer of life where the sun is shining bright and There's a glow all about us, and if anybody asks us how things are going or what's happening in our lives, it's just sunshine, flowers, it's like the good season. But others of us are in maybe the spring or the fall of life, where it's it's not too bad, but... uh, You know, there's a few things, there's a few nagging things in our lives, or maybe there's a trouble that keeps kind of presenting itself. It's always kind of there, but it wouldn't be the kind of summer glow that we all want to experience. And then, lastly, there's some of us that are in the winter. We're in the season of seemingly endless darkness and coldness and pale skin, you know, and all the things that most people don't like about winter, that is the season we're in. That actually describes the life that we are living and the struggle that we are in. And when people come to the scriptures, there's many different ways to look at the Bible and look at what the Bible has to tell us. Last week, Harold reminded us, there's some people out there that think that, you know, if I just follow everything in here, that just goodness is going to come my way. Prosperity is going to come. I'm going to get the job that I want. I'm going to get the family that I want. I'm going to get, you know, the car that I want, the house. that Everything's going to kind of come my way if I just follow Jesus the right way. But then others see the word of God, and this is oftentimes skeptics but it's not only skeptics as a book for people who are just in need of some sort of assurance some sort of help you know it's for people who are weak and who have problems and in their problems they need to go somewhere so they go to some higher being because they can't figure out their own solution and today we're coming to psalm 22 a psalm that kind of punches both of those theories right in the gut Because it goes straight to the heart of what life is all about. It gives us two things to really chew on and think about, which we're going to do in just a little time that we have together. It gets us thinking about these two things. The first is this, that life will be filled with pain and struggle. Your life and my life will be filled with pain and struggle. And if you don't believe that, you're either in denial or you're under 20 years old or something. I don't know. You're just, you haven't lived long enough, okay, to realize the truth of that. And the Psalms tell us the truth. They show us that life is really hard sometimes. That there are things that we feel that are not consistent with what we want or even what we've been promised. And the second thing that we see in this Psalm is that our... Hope can be held within the deepest possible pain, and we'll use the New Testament to help us understand that it's through moving closer to Christ, not moving further away from Christ, that we actually experience hope. Dr. Samuel Schultz says this, The Psalms express the common experience of the human race. Composed by numerous authors, the various psalms express the emotions, personal feelings, attitudes, the gratitude, and the interests of average individuals. Universally, people have identified their lot in life with that of the psalmists. So the experience of people over the centuries, and especially Christians, those of us who who meditate on the Psalms, we see, when we look at them, the reality of life in them. In these poetic songs, we experience and see what God is doing in the midst of people's lives through hardship, but giving them hope at the same time. So we're going to look quickly at this psalm because it's pretty long. So we're just going to skim over a lot of it. So if you have a phone with it up, I don't even have all the text on there. So at times we're just going to kind of grab little bits. But we're going to first look at the confusion that David is experiencing. The confusion that David expresses in this psalm. Look at just verses 1 and 2 to start us off. It says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. David, here in these opening verses, is describing what many of us have felt at different seasons in our life. If you've gone through a hard season in your life, if you've gone through a difficult season in your life, you may have even read these verses or experience the very same things that David experiences. In the first 10 verses, David expresses all kinds of feelings. Look at what he says. We just read verses 1 and 2, but in verse 3, there's actually a, a note of truth that comes out. He says, yet you are holy. He's talking about God. Verse 4 says, in, our fa- in, in you our fathers trusted. So he's kind of like wrestling over, yeah, there's There's actually some historical precedence for you being faithful, God. But he goes on and he says, I don't see that happening. Verse 6, I'm a worm. I'm scorned by mankind. All who see me mock me, he says in verse 7. They say he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. They're just like making fun of David. In verse 9, he says, yet you who took me from the womb, you made me trust at my mother's breasts. So David is like in in his expression to God through this season of difficulty that we can't even pinpoint. We're not even sure what it is, what point in his life he wrote this, but he's just kind of gushing out to God all the things that are in his heart. The things that make sense, the things that are based on truth, the things that are just based on his feelings. David is just pouring it all out to God. And he's saying, God, in this season, I don't know what is going on. It is a season of trouble. And like I said before, if you've experienced a season of trouble, your life has probably been a similar pattern. Your talking to God has maybe been very similar. God, where are you in this situation? I feel like I'm completely alone. But maybe like a little bit of truth comes out, and you're like, well, God, I, I know that this is truth, and, and I put my trust in you, and so that can't be true. But then the emotions come back, and you say, God, I feel completely alone. I feel like nobody is standing beside me. And this is the very thing that David is experiencing and feeling. He's expressing what we even experience. And it's not just Christians who think that way. You may have seen this before at different times in history as Societies have faced tragedy. People in, in like a state of despair, a state of confusion, they turn anywhere for help. You know, just a few years ago when the pandemic started, Google saw a 30% increase in people searching for the concept of prayer, any kind of prayer, from any kind of religion. Why is that? Because people were Desperate. People were, like, at a point in their lives experiencing something they had never experienced before. At times, it drives people to turn towards God, but it also, at the same time, turns people away from God. I remember when 9-11 happened. That was a long time ago, 20 years ago. But there were many people. There were thousands of people that were going into church services and thousands of people even giving their lives to Christ but there was also stories of people who thought if god could allow this to happen trust in a god like my city or in my country or in my world then i can't even trust in a god like that and people walked right away from god this is what happens in our deepest pain we start asking questions we start looking for answers because we're stuck something is happening that is beyond us and it's something that we as humans all experience it's in every movie as well every well-written movie has an arc like that okay if you've ever studied films and how they work they kind of go like this you know developing the characters and then it comes to this peak there's some sort of problem that happens and then usually there's resolution and everything is a happy ending, most movies, right? Happy ending. But that peak, right there at the top, in almost every movie, there's a scene of someone in despair. There's a scene of someone just like David. I find no rest, tossing and turning in bed. The other week, I was flying to Austria, so eight and a half hours flight over there, and nine hours back, watch a lot of movies right you're just trying to kill time watching all kinds of movies and this arc this moment of desperation showed up in almost every movie and a wide variety of genres so i watched again saving private ryan which i've watched so many times watched that one again and i watched my what's it called my neighbor about uh fred rogers the story about his life and in both those movies very different genres Main characters experience what David experienced. Trouble in their life. Questioning. Rolling in bed. Tossing and turning. Not able to sleep. David is experiencing this in his life. And he puts it down on paper. And reminds us that this is also The very thing that many of us, if not most of us, have experienced. But in verse 11, he tucks in there a little prayer, a little grasping for hope. Verse 11 says this But be not far from me, for trouble is near and there's none to help. So in his lowest moment, David's still calling out to God in the confusion, in the questioning of God. In the question of, is God even here in this circumstance that I am living out, David says, but God, if you're there, will you come near? I'm begging you, will you come near in that moment? The psalm goes on. After verse 11, David uses some imagery to get us thinking about another aspect of the trouble that he's facing, and it's the trouble with people around him. He uses imagery of the the bulls of Bashan, and a lion, and the dogs that encompass him. David says, not only is the circumstances around me going badly, and everything seems to be crumbling around me, he says, there's also people that are opposed to me. And so, The bulls of Bashan, which none of us are probably familiar with, it's a region, Bashan is a region in Palestine, which was very fertile, the the grass grew well, got a lot of rain, and so the animals that they would raise there would be the largest and the strongest in the nation. And so David is using that image to say, the, the leaders, the ones who are the power brokers in Palestine, those are the people that are actually rising up against me. But he says not only those people, he says the dogs are also rising up, they're encompassing him, they are surrounding him. This is not our modern day puppy, okay? Don't have that in mind, that this is the dogs, these are like the friends. The dog was a a dirty animal that was just out in the wild and As garbage and carcasses would be around, they would encircle it and like a pack they would devour it. And David says, that is an image of what I'm experiencing. He calls these evildoers, these dogs actually evildoers. They are the people that are around him that are causing him trouble. And if you read his life story, we see that he's got betrayal, and we've got all kinds of people who are opposed to him and fighting against him being the king. And here's a couple things that stand out from this. When we go to God, even in the midst of our trouble, our problems do not instantly disappear. As much as we would want them to just go away, as much as we know that God is able to, to in a moment change a life, We read about it in the Gospels where Jesus comes and comes to the lepers and he comes to the blind people and in that moment he heals them. So God is able to, but God often does not just instantly take our problems away from us. David is saying, I've got these problems, they're mounting, I'm praying God come near and wave two comes, it's actually people who are opposed to me and causing even more damage to my life. So God does not instantly take away our problems. And often, secondly, our greatest challenges come from other people. I mean, the circumstances of life are difficult. Absolutely. But people in our lives often cause the greatest pain towards us. And sometimes even it's the people that are closest to us. And David is describing for us this picture of a darkness that he is experiencing you should be feeling, kind of by the end of verse 18, you're like, whoa, David is low. And even like, I'm here, I'm about 10 minutes into the sermon, it's low, right? Things are down. David is feeling like the depth of pain. And that's intentional. This is a song that the Israelites would sing to remind themselves of what it's like to be in that place of pain. Because quickly, when we're in the glow of summertime we can forget about it. But David brings us down to the depths to actually feel that. And he pauses again in verse 19 to ask God, to pray to God. Verse 19 says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So David says again, God, please come save me. You can do this from the lion, from the dog, from the bull. You can save me from all these different circumstances, these different people who are against me. God, come and do it. And then in a moment, if you see in your text, in verse 22, it's a shift. There's a change. Something happens between verses 21 and verse 22. And David now turns and gives this vision of what God can do. A vision what God has for his people and for his nation. And again, not reading all the verses, but if we kind of skim, we see what David is pointing out. Verse 23 says, stand in awe of him. So now David's saying, okay, watch and see what God can do. Verse 24, he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. So God actually has heard. That's different than what he's saying in verse 1. So something is shifted here. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. May your hearts live forever. Verse 27 says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord And verse 28 says, For the kingship belongs to the Lord. Verse 29, All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. And then the last verse, They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. God has done it. David suddenly, from verse 21 to 22, has shifted in his understanding. The vision that he's seeing now for God's people and for those who put their trust in him is a totally different vision. It is one of hope. It is one filled with expectation. And it is one where God actually accomplishes it. God does it. Hope is an amazing thing, isn't it? It makes a massive difference. It actually makes a practical difference in our lives. The choices and the things that we experience. When we have hope it actually changes our life. I heard an example recently of two women who were very similar. They were married, they had children, but they went into this job to do a certain thing where they were building uh, different about them, similar product in different rooms. So here they were not much different about them. But one of them went to a room and they knew that they were being paid $2000 a month to do this job, to put this piece together, and that was their work. And the other woman, very similar state, was in the same room, in a different room, sorry, building the same product, but she was going to be paid two million dollars a month. Neither of them knew the difference. So a few weeks pass, and they've been making these widgets, and finally they're on lunch break together. And the one woman says, don't you think this job is kind of tedious and boring and I don't know, it's like doing the same thing, and I don't really see myself here long-term. Just not that great. And the other woman says, I think this job's great. This is wonderful. You know, I can do this all day long. Um, I'm just whistling a song as I'm putting this widget together. What's the difference here? They're obviously, it's pretty plain, they're interpreting their circumstances differently because they know What's coming down the line? One's hope, and this is just monetary, is in something far greater. I mean, something we can't even imagine being paid $2 million a month. It's just so far beyond us. And the other woman is kind of like, I don't know, this isn't that great. And it actually changes the way they view their current circumstances. And this is what David is pointing us to at verse 22. He's pointing us to the solution. And many commentators have said that Psalm 22 is, it's debatable actually even if this is about David himself. I, I believe it was a part of David's life. But many commentators say, when you look at these first 21 verses, they say David was never even in that desperate of a state But maybe his poetic license allowed him to put himself there. And what most commentators believe is that Psalm 22 is pointing us to, for David, which was the Messiah, but which for us is Jesus himself. Roger Ellsworth, in his commentary, says this, We have to say, therefore, that this psalm is the result of the Spirit of God taking over the pen of David in a strange and marvelous way, so that he, David, was able to write the very words of the Messiah himself. David is putting down onto papyrus, or whatever instrument he was using, a vision for God's people, a vision for Individuals and for nations, of what life would be like when the Messiah would come and accomplish what none of us could accomplish. It's a lane change. Have you ever, well, all of us have been on the highway before when construction is happening and the lane change? I hope you're not one of those ones who kind of waits till the last minute to get in. You, You know, yeah. But this is a lane change for us, it is a pointer saying, the one who can come and actually remedy your problem, even in the midst of it, and give you hope to get through it, is the Messiah, is Jesus. And to help us understand that, would you turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. The New Testament helps us make sense of what Psalm 22 is saying. And in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews points us to Psalm 22, and it says this, starting in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, that's Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, he who sank founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source— that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. There's Psalm 22, verse 22. That's the shift right there. The writer of Hebrews is saying, who the psalmist was putting all of his hope in, who the psalmist wrote about without knowing, is actually Jesus. Jesus. Then verse 13 says, And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God, God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely... It is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The author here is saying there are two things specifically that Jesus is coming to do. He's coming to conquer death And sin. You can see that in verse 15 and in verse 17. Jesus has come to conquer death and sin. Death, this event that is facing every single one of us, the thing that none of us has full control over, the thing that God only knows is goodness. What's all going to happen to us after we go through that darkness? And the thing that affects not only us, obviously, but our loved ones as well, this is what Jesus has come to defeat. But not only death, because even death we can, now we can, with assisted suicide, we can, in a sense, try to control it, and we even have scientists who are trying to create medicine and technology so that we can live forever. I heard it again on the radio this week. You know, scientists are working on this medication or something that's supposedly can help us live for 200 or 300 years. So better start saving up for that retirement, right? Because that's gonna be a long life. But even if Death, we find some way of extending it longer and longer. We still bear the consequence in our world of sin around us. The brokenness of our world. The way that nations rage against each other. The way that people steal from one another. The pride that we experience. The struggle in relationship. The the tensions that we face that we just can't seem to work out. And the writer of Hebrews says... Jesus came to save us from that. Jesus came to not only fix it, but to make all things new. And the way that he did that, let's read verse 17 again. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's us. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus came into the world to be like us, to live like us. But he also came to play the Trinity for us. And that's what the cross is pointing to. And in some mysterious way, the Trinity was separated at the moment of the cross. And there was desperation where Jesus actually yelled out to the Father. And the way that some scriptures kind of describe what happened to us is this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53, 4 and 10 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet he esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. In Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. These verses are describing for us what David was describing of himself. David He's trying to describe his own life, but in so doing, he's actually explaining and showing to us what the cross was all about that Jesus was crushed for us, Jesus was killed for our sin and for the brokenness of the world. But that leads us to good news. Someone's death actually becomes good news. And that's why we call it the gospel. It is the good news that we share that Jesus has actually accomplished something that none of us could accomplish. None of us could fix our lives. None of us could fix the problem of sin in our lives. We can, maybe we can do better. We can have like less fights with our wife or maybe we can be a little bit kinder to our kids, but we can't ultimately take that away. It's always there. And we can't solve the problem of death. We can try everything we want. We can, you know, try to, protect ourselves as much as possible, but it's always there. And Jesus says, I've come to solve that. I'm the only one who can solve that. I'm the only one in solving that can actually give you hope to face not only today, but the mystery of whatever tomorrow brings. The things that only God knows will come tomorrow and next week and next month. Jesus says, I've come to solve that. Jesus on the cross in Matthew 27, verse 46. Right before he's about to die, he says this. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, in his moment of pain and suffering, what was on the tip of his tongue, the first thing that came to his mind, Was Psalm 22. And all the pain and all the difficulty and the separation from God is what Jesus is experiencing on the cross. And so the pain that we see in Psalm 22 is not primarily for us to draw encouragement from, though it does that. I hope it encourages you. I hope it shows you that the reality of life is there and that we can put our hope and our trust in Christ. But Psalm 22 is actually primarily meant to point us, like an arrow on a highway, to Jesus. That Jesus is the one who conquers everything. That Jesus is the one that our hope is anchored to. He is the one who we draw all of our hope and our comfort from. And like it says at the end of Psalm 31, that he, Teresa, verse 31, he has done it. St. Teresa of Avila, who was a Catholic nun, maybe said it best like this. She said, From heaven, even the most miserable life will look like one night in an inconvenient hotel. Our hope today and for eternity is anchored to Jesus. Will you draw closer to him rather than pulling away from him in your darkest moments? Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for hope that we have. Lord, we are frail people filled with trouble in this life that we can't solve. And so, Lord, I pray that for those of us who are followers of you, that we would today put our trust in you. And for those who maybe haven't even come to faith and maybe don't even know if they want to put their trust in Jesus and even wrestle with The idea of God, just like David did, Lord, I pray that today that they will take one step closer to looking at Jesus and putting their trust in him. Lord, we thank you for the cross and what you've done for us. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.